Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Looking forward to this time together with you. I hope your day's been good so far, and I'm only hoping now it gets better. I've got my Bible open right now to Isaiah chapter 26. In verse 4, it says, trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. Great way to start. You are in good hands for the next hour, because my guest is Jay Warner Wallace, and he's been nice enough to come on regularly, which makes me awfully happy, and I know it makes you happy, because I hear from you. He is a uh, not only a former cold case homicide detective, uh, he's been featured on Dateline many times. He's also in huge demand as a national speaker, and he's also a best-selling author. He's written many books, and uh, he's also a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and an adjunct professor of Christian apologetics at the Talbot School of Theology at Biola. Always glad to have him on. His latest book, which he has uh, just come out with recently, is called Person of Interest. Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. And this is a great book. Uh, I've been able to look through it and read much of it, and I'm excited about it. And I definitely want you to uh, consider this. Uh, Go to Amazon.com, check it out. And he's got 400 original illustrations in the book. That alone should make you want to get it, because there's not not a lot Jim Wallace can't do. So, always glad to have him on. Jim, welcome. Well, I think there's actually a lot I can't do, if I'm <laughs> honest with you. But you usually, unfortunately, find that after after you've tried. You know, yeah. you go, oh, dang, I guess I can't do that. But um, but I'm glad that you got the book, and I'm I'm, I'm happy to, you know, those illustrations are, are part of the passion I have. I, when I write a book, I feel like I'm kind of creating a piece of art. You know, it's the book itself, how it lays out, how the, how the pages turn, what's on each page, yeah. where it's on each page. That stuff matters to me. So so doing the the artwork on it is a uh, kind of a labor of love. You know. So. Uh, Jim, it becomes so kind of deeply personal, doesn't it? Because you, you turn a page and you've got your artwork, which people can be critical of as well. <laughs> yeah, no, let's, let's, let's face it. When you write a book that makes a case for Christianity, yeah. not just from a, a perspective of personal opinion or experience, but tries to make the case from an evidential perspective, like, hey, this is true, whether we like it or not. Uh, well, then you just get ready. You're going you're gonna to get a lot of pushback from people who, for whatever reason, don't see Christianity um, in a favorable way anymore. And, and so they, they resist. Uh, they want to really actively kind of knock it down if they can. So, so yeah, it's, it's it's a strange world too that we're living in social media. It's just that it's so aggressive, right? It's tribal media, and so we don't we're not socially it's connected mean. by it. We're yeah, we're we're tribally entrenched by it. So, so it you just get ready if if again if you're just making if you're saying hey here's my experience, which is why I think sometimes in a social media world where it is really aggressive, right? The attacks we see on each other. Uh, people are going to move away from objective claims about reality towards subjective claims about reality because because if if, if it's just my personal experience, it's hard for you to say, well, no, you didn't experience that. Well, no, it's just my personal experience. This was my experience. To say that it's objectively true, though, like it's not a matter of my experience. This is a fact that's grounded in something outside of my opinion. 
Well, that's where the the, the real kind of um, you know the battle begins. So I think that in this kind of world we're living in, don't be surprised if more claims are made as subjective opinions because they're harder to attack, right. especially in a world that's pound, you know it's kind of like poised to attack. That's so good. So when we uh, I, I talk often on the show that I want people to have a sense of urgency in terms of sharing their faith and their hope in Christ with people in their circle of influence versus, you know, maybe I'll wait till Thanksgiving and then maybe I'll wait till Easter. And then, you know, you keep waiting and the years pass and you're not having conversations with important people in your life. And um, anyway, I just want to always remind people to have a sense of urgency. So what I love about having you on the show uh, regularly, Jim, is that you, you have such not only great content, but you have such incredibly well-reasoned arguments. And I think this is what empowers people when they feel better equipped to go out and share their faith. So if you don't mind, I'd like to uh, start today uh, is talking about what happens when people that we we talk to are resisting our message and resisting the gospel. Well, I mean, this, this is going to happen. for There's a tendency, I think, when we experience that, that we assume up front, like, what it is that's causing their resistance. You know, they're resisting because I'm not gracious enough. They're resisting because the argument's not strong enough. They're resisting because this really isn't true, and maybe I've underestimated how untrue it really is. When often, probably the lion's share of, of times people resist is based on experiences that they've had, emotional reactions they have toward the truth claim. You know, if you've been convinced by the culture that you're really basically a, a white racist if you're a Christian— that there's a connection between these two worlds, worldviews, um, then you're going to have to overcome a perception rather than just the evidence. And there's a lot of folks, and this is probably the lion's share of folks, that even if I could remove all of the things you might kind of um, cause or think of as objectionable, right? Maybe you've just bought into what the culture says or you've constructed this objection yourself. But but even if you could somehow work around all those, there's a lot of folks that would just say, I'm just not willing to surrender my autonomy. I'm not willing to surrender um, my ability to make my own decisions and not feel bad about it afterwards. Like I don't want to have – like I've already kind of carved out a niche in the world of my own worldview in which I feel pretty good about myself every day. And I don't want to, to, to now have to submit myself to this overarching worldview that identifies me as a sinner in need of a savior. I mean that's an offensive – the gospel, as we always say, is offensive. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people will simply resist because they think that the claim is offensive. They, they, they aren't even measuring the claim or assessing the claim to see if it's true. They just don't like it. And and so what do you do with folks like that? And I think that we have to have a strategy. You know, there are people who are really seeking and are God has brought them to a place in their lives where they're really ready to kind of hear the gospel message. And maybe they've got a couple of objections or a couple of questions that are holding them back. And those kinds of folks are out there. And they might be in your own family. And those are the kind of people who you can now kind of reach with good explanations, with a good understanding of what it is that's theologically true, philosophically true, all of that, okay? And so there are good pe- there are people out there who really are poised. But there are a lot of folks out there who you have to kind of pray them into that position mm-hmm. first. And and if we don't do that, if we don't pray them into that, we, we have a tendency to, like, like it was Luther who said, I'm going to work as though it's all on me and pray as though it's all on God. And I think we have to recognize that, yeah, that, that God uses us, and we definitely are used by God to communicate a message to people, because he could easily create all of us with the innate knowledge of Jesus at birth. But he didn't do that. 
So we are required on the outside to, to, to say something about the gospel, to communicate something about the gospel. It didn't have to be that way. God could have made that first step of communication innate, but he didn't do it that way. He wants us in the game for whatever reason, probably just so we can develop our own Christian maturity. But, but so the question then becomes, well, what, what do we communicate? But in the end, all of that communication will fall on deaf ears unless God is in it. And so we don't 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 be too hard on yourself if you feel like yeah I'm, I'm no one's paying attention, or I I I don't want to say it again at Thanksgiving because last time I tried, it didn't go anywhere. Well, then just just be praying and don't feel as though your prayers aren't enough because they are enough. Because at some point you'll get a sense that this person is moving toward you in this um, in the context of the gospel, and is no longer as resistant. And this is the result of prayer, and now you're in a position where you can share something. Jim, in 2021, should we be updating some of the words we use? When I think of just now, you had talked about surrendering your life to Christ. Uh, that's a word that you and I completely understand. I completely get that. Yeah. But are, is that a word that becomes a roadblock for people? If I said, I've got the most wonderful invitation for you that's going to be about love and, and forgiveness and grace. Ooh, tell me more about that. Well, I, I think you're you're right. I mean, there's a Christianese we all use, and I don't even think it's a word issue. It's not a matter of exchanging out words. It's really about approaches we take. It's bigger. You know, it's not just about, well, I'm going to have the exact same ten words, but this time I'm going to change out word number seven <laughs> for this other word that sounds like word number seven, but it's actually better in context. No, it's really about that. So those entire ten words probably need to be reset. Look, yeah. I always say it this way. You are already a slave to something. Do you know that? I mean, are you aware of that? You already are. Yeah. There's stuff that, 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 that controls your life right now. The only question is, is that stuff good for you? Is that stuff good at all? Is that stuff that you, you know, this is why when Jesus talks about sending you free, it's, it's, it's not about you're going like, to, no one's free of any, um, um, uh, there's nobody who doesn't submit to something. There's nobody who doesn't, doesn't surrender their lives to something. If you're gambling, you surrender your lives to the next, uh, you know, sports line. Right. If you're, if you're, it's a sex, you've surrendered your life to the, to your sexual desires. Whatever it may be, you've already, like, you've already submitted your life to something. Now, wouldn't you like to be able to focus that to submit it to something that's really worthy of your submission? Because all these things are not worthy of your time. If you really think about it, they're not. You know, they're not. Yet you still do it anyway because you're stuck. Wouldn't you like to be unstuck? And submit that kind of devotion to something that's worthy of your devotion. So now what we're trying to do is to try to contextualize this. You know, we're really talking about submission, but we really have to explain it for people, right? Because so much of it is um, is they're experiencing every day, but they don't even realize they're experiencing it. But Jim, what you just said is so invitational and it's so rational, and you didn't well, use I, words that I felt at all triggered by. Well, yeah, please. You're using the word trigger. That trigger word triggers me. Okay, so just so you know. Uh, but, but I mean, that is. You're right about. You're right about trying to figure out. And it's going to sound different for each person you talk to. Yeah. It's going to sound different, not just for the context where they are geographically, but where they are in their life. You know, where you are with the kinds of decisions you're making at 18 is very different than where you are making those decisions at 78. And your life experience is very different. So the way we're going to say it is going to be different, right? Because you probably have more regrets and more memory of things that could have been better at 78 than you do at 18. At 18, it's about your future and optimizing your future. But so many people, are, that's you know, there's a selfish reason. Look, it's okay to be a little bit selfish. If, if, if we're selfishly in desire of forgiveness, that's a selfish you know, kind of desire that God can use for something great. 
Um, so, so there is a if we if you don't have a concern for your soul, you could say that a concern for your soul could be selfish. Yeah. yeah, in a sense it is, but God can use that kind of selfishness to change your life and to change the lives around you. So, so I think that that it's okay to to to, to leverage our selfishness, right? It's not that God comes; He wants to give you something for your best life now, you know, to make your life better. Because what He's about to do is going to make your life probably harder. Mm-hmm. But you will be saved. You will be united to God, both here now and in the future. Um, so, so that's that's the price you're going to pay, right? Wouldn't you like to be in the truth, even if the truth is inconvenient, even if the truth costs you something? You still like to be in the truth. Um, so, so it's about trying to get people to have a high regard for the truth. Yeah, so good. Uh, Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. His latest book is called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. You can also head over to coldcasechristianity.com, coldcasechristianity.com. Jim's got tons of resources there, videos, blogs, and all of his books, titles, articles. Got it all there. We'll take a short break and be right back. If you have a question for Jim... Let me know what it is, My guest didn't go anywhere during the break. He is Jay Warner Wallace, and he's uh, author of many books. The one that he most recently finished, and he also did all the illustrations on all 400, is called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. And we're chatting a little bit on, um, on how uh, should we respond to people who are resisting the gospel. And I just had a great comment come come in from Martha in Manchester, Connecticut. She said, uh, maybe I'm off on this, but it seems like there's been a shift from seeking the truth to just seeking affirmation. Oh, that's 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 true. Probably not just about the gospel. I mean, that's probably true. This is why social media, and this has always been there. It's always been part of our our nature, mm-hmm. our fallen nature to seek affirmation, to seek to look, to look at. I call it otherism. This idea that we reject people who are different than us. We are, are inclined toward people who are like us, and this has been demonstrated in study after study after study. You're more likely to marry somebody who is in the same socioeconomic group status that you are. Your friends probably are. You're probably marrying somebody also has the same educational level you do, more than likely than not, not always, but more than likely. As a matter of fact, they've done studies and people, uh, DNA of married couples is far more alike than the DNA of unmarried couples uh, who, don't, who aren't living together. So you'll see that, that you are inclined by your very nature to seek yourself in others and then group together uh, and, and avoid others. And this, this otherism, that I always call it otherism, uh, can be seen in a number of different kinds of isms, one of which is racism. That's like the cheapest, uh, most ridiculous 
lazy form of otherism there is, right? Because you can see what's different about somebody from across the room with, with racism, where you may not notice this with some other form of otherism that would separate you from somebody, right? Like what they like or don't like, that's also going to be a way you separate. Now, why I say that is because affirmation, right, is just you getting other people who are like you to affirm that you are you, it's so completely self-absorbed, right? Mm-hmm. And this is the nature of what we do, and, and all social media does is amplify that because you have a tendency. Right? What are we doing on social media? We're gathering tribes of people who are like us, and we start looking at news that affirms our worldview. It doesn't stretch our worldview. It just affirms the worldview we already have. And then if you start watching that news, well, the algorithms pick up on you, and they start advertising to you things that affirm your worldview. So now you're just saturated on every level by people who are like you, who affirm your view. So you become a self-affirming being, right? And now you enter into other examinations. I'm going to examine what school I'm going to go to. Well, I'm going to look for a school that affirms my view, which is okay, right? But even when it comes to like religious worldviews, I'm now looking for whatever view is out there that already matches who what I think of God. Like it's not going to stretch me. Like I already have this view of what's important, what's right, what's wrong, how we got here, why the world's messed up. You already have your worldview in place, and you're just looking for another theistic worldview that best matches. And by the way, if you're subtly being changed by culture, well, now you're looking for a god who fits the culture. So there's – yeah, you're absolutely right. This idea of affirmation is only made worse by social media. Yeah. Well, that's so smart, Jim. That's such a great reminder. You know, we all – tend to gravitate towards people like us, right? Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, this is why, you know, what the whole issue, this is before George Floyd, several years ago um, during the Dallas police shootings. I remember uh, doing a presentation that I started to do nationally called Bridging the Thin Blue Line, just talking about how do we, how do we find common ground in a world where there's no such thing anymore, right? There's no reasonable middle. There are just entrenched edges. And and those edges have to be bridged. And how do we, you know, how do we bridge? And what what is the thing that is is dividing us is otherism. And yes, it might we might say it's racism in this setting, but it'll be some other form of ism, sexism, whatever it is, ageism, whatever it is. We will find a way. And you know how I first noticed this? I first noticed it um, when I showed my my handgun to my wife's German relatives. They were visiting one year, and I was working patrol, and they said, what kind of a handgun do you carry? And I showed them my Glock 21. Mm-hmm. And they said, ah, that's garbage in German. <laughs> I said, well, why? And they said, because it's Austrian. And I thought to myself, so, so they live in southern Bavaria, and they're about 50 miles from the Austrian border. The language, culture, food, clothing, it's so – that's a line that was drawn in the sand you know, arbitrarily uh, after World War II. I mean, it's so interesting to me that these two people groups have so divided when they are so similar. Well, then I realized when I was working gangs that there are all kinds of family members living on one side of, the, of, of a major thoroughfare in Los Angeles or the other, dividing Crips from Bloods. And I'm thinking, you're even the same family units have been divided by these lines. Like, we, we have a tendency to divide from one another uh, that is so it's so, it's fascinating to me that and and this is arbitrary in some in some ways right but we find those things that we rally around and then we everyone else is another and by the way if we were all the same race 
same sex, and the same physical appearance, we would still find a way to divide from one another. We'd say, well, you live on the odd side of the street. I live on the even side of the street. All the evens, we are different than you odds. So we'd find some way to divide because that's our base nature. We are otherists because that's part of our fallen human nature. And and so when we think, well, I need to change a system to fix this or I need to change an approach, I'll be honest with you, none of that's going to work because it's part of our fallen human nature. You've got to start from the inside out. It's a change of heart. And that is the gospel. The gospel does that. And I always say it this way. The gospel fixes every kind of stupid you could imagine including otherism stupid and cop stupid and bad guy stupid and whatever it may be, you know, whatever you think that, you know, um, the you know, people committing crime stupid, people who are victims stupid. There's all kinds of stupid out there. And it turns out that the gospel addresses all of it. But we have, but here's, that's the one thing that fixes the problem. Because, again, if you're thinking, well, I can just change the outward system to change the problem. Well, you're you're taking for granted the nature of the human heart. We we hold a worldview that says that humans are innately fallen. We're not innately good and corrupted by our our environment. We are innately fallen and have a, the ability to corrupt our environment. So you can provide a new environment. We'll just corrupt that too. Mm-hmm. Jim, I've got a regular guest on the show, uh, Doctor Borgon, and he was. T- taking me on this little uh, linear train where he said, you know, what you believe is obviously super important because what you believe will create your values and then your values will determine your worldview and then your worldview will motivate your actions and then your actions will reveal what you really believe. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I always say it this way for your students, you know, these are these kinds of trajectory decisions. Some decisions you have to put in first place. You have to make these decisions first. It's like if you leave the Earth and you're heading toward the moon, you're a mile away from the moon, and you'd make a two-degree error, you're still going to land on the moon. But if you're at Earth and make the two-degree error, you'll miss the moon by several thousand miles. <laughs> That's a trajectory decision, yeah. those yeah. early decisions. Same decision, made late, can Oof. impact your life very little compared to when made early. And worldview is the probably the foremost trajectory decision you have to make before you make any – as a young, if you're a high schooler, the first and most important decision, trajectory decision you're going to make is, well, what is true – about your worldview. In other words, your worldview is going to set up how you answer those three questions. How did we get here? Why is it so messed up? And how do we fix it? Those are the three most important questions answered by any worldview. And how you answer those questions shapes how you see everything else. So it's important to get that in place first. But the second, I mean, this is crazy for young people, but I always say the second worldview decision you need, or second uh, trajectory decision you need to make is not career or what school you're going to go to so you can have this career or what ministry you're going to how you're going to serve God. It's spouse. It's spouse. As it turns out, your marriage is going to make a huge impact on how you how you. It, it's like we entrench once we get into a relationship. What views we hold in that relationship take up on greater value and greater importance. So you might have a certain view of the world, but if your spouse holds that view, well, now you're holding it either in reaction to or in support of your spouse. So the kinds of decisions you make about spouse, I mean, you've known people who've made terrible financial decisions, but if they are in a happy marriage, they get, they get back pretty well. But yeah. if they're in a bad marriage, you're going to have all the best things in the world in terms of material success, and you'll be miserable because you're in a, marriage is important. That's true. Jay Werner Wallace is my guest. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, lots more. His new book is Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. You can head right over to his website as well, coldcasechristianity.com. Learn more about Jim. Be right back.
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Prime time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. You just jumped in your car. My guest is Jay Warner Wallace. He's a uh, featured cold case homicide detective on Dateline. He's also a national speaker and best-selling author. We're chatting a little bit about his new book, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. And we're chatting a little bit about why and how we should respond to people who resist the gospel. Let's get personal here, Jim. When people give you, uh, you know, resistance and they say mean things, how do you deal with it? Does it hurt your feelings? Uh, okay. It depends on where this happens, right? So if you're at like your, your dinner when you're at your Sunday dinner with your family, uh-huh. that that's going to be a lot different than if someone's doing it on social media on Twitter. Sure. Right. So, so let's just start like closest to home. You know, when, when, when people, I, I think we have to, uh, most of the people who I'm with at home, uh, my family members, I, I've tried to earn the right to be who I mean, who I am and to, to express what's true. Um, because I've already earned that right, hopefully in other aspects of our relationship. That's why sometimes you'll see this is more difficult at Thanksgiving with people who you only see twice a year, right? Because, you know, they maybe haven't had the day-to-day, they haven't seen you love them well for as many, your kids probably have a different notion of who you are, for example, than, you know, your your cousin who you only see once in a while. Um, so I'm different around, you know, uh, my cousins, for example, than I would be around my own kids. I can, mm-hmm. I can push the ball a little further with my kids because right. I, I think I hope I've earned that right to be able to do that. Although, look, I mean, you're still going to – but even if I didn't do it well, they're probably not likely to come at me the way you would on Twitter. So I think that's a little bit different. I always wonder, well, if, if they do come at me, what did I, what did I say wrong? What, how, how could I have done this better? I'm more likely to question my own um, heart on the issue and my own ability to communicate if it's somebody who I know super well, right? Because then they should know me well enough to know I didn't mean it like that. And if, I, and if, they, if, they aren't, if they're taking me that way, maybe I, I really you know, messed this up. But if it's somebody on social media, I just have an expectation that's different. You know, and I am also, I will tell you that um, part of doing the, the work of in, in the public eye right now is law and law enforcement. I mean, this has been true forever. This was true in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, all the way till today, is that you cannot be somebody who is thick skin, as thin skin rather about being criticized. And that's why when you go to the academy, you know, when you go into any kind of boot camp setting for law enforcement, they're going to treat you so poorly for, for four months. They're treating you that poorly because they know that you're going to be treated that poorly on the outside. Mm. So if you can't take this, we need to find that out now. We need to find out now. If I'm screaming at you about something that's utterly benign, that you think this is not fair that you're being screamed at about this, well, that, just get used to that. That's, that's going to be your life for the rest of your career, more than likely, uh, in certain settings. Because you're going to go into a setting where people aren't going to like you being there to begin with. They probably didn't call you. Probably somebody else called you to deal with them. So now you're in a situation where they don't want you to be there, and they're probably going to be vocal about it, especially if they're drunk or high or whatever. So you have to be the kind of person who's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> you know. Now, I, I do think that that's a, a kind of an acquired skill. So I don't expect everyone to have it. But just be aware that if you're on social media, that you cannot be thin-skinned about people saying that's why you have buttons on social media like mute, like block. You know, These tools are available to you on social media because nobody has to be the victim. You, you don't have to put up with that. And you can either mute it so you never see it again, or you can just block those people off your social media platform. Now, th- I'm talking as a public figure. 
But most of you who are on social media are probably connected there to your friends. So when your friends say something to you, that's different than when an utter stranger says something vile, right? If a friend says something vile to you. And I think we are in a place like never before where um, we're so polarized that um, – and, and if I'm honest with you, we're polarized over, over political candidates and political ideologies more than anything else. We've politicized everything. So you might have a view of, uh, let's say, vaccinations or a view of – you name it, but it's probably connected to the politics that surround it. You're as upset about the politics of it as you might be about the issue itself. Mm-hmm. Right, and if your if your side is saying you should do something, you're probably thinking we should do it. And if the other side is saying you should do something, you're like going, I don't know, you know. Well, that's that's because we are we've politicized everything. So I try in those settings just not to 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 amplify the politics of it. So let's say, for example, that a particular candidate makes an obviously clear truth statement. I'm probably not going to, to, to repost that because the political candidate's name is in there, mm-hmm. and it's connected to the politics of it. There's probably another article out there that makes the same truth claim, does not connect it at the hip to a political candidate. That's the kind of stuff I'm going to post. If I've got issues I want to express, I'm going to try to avoid their connection to politics because I want to win someone's opinion or win someone's – I want to win, win over an argument. I don't want to – before I even begin – I cut my legs out from under me because they see it as politics. Yeah, so smart. What about when you're connecting with somebody who maybe you you know you knew 30 years ago, maybe from the, the police force, and now you're a different person, and they they come at you with a little bit of the are you, are you one of those Jesus guys? No, uh, you know, and they start almost making fun of you. And these are this is someone that you've known for a long time. Well, that's going to happen. I mean, you know that. Oh, I, mean, I know that is, to be true. So, yeah, so we know that's going to happen. I mean, that, that shouldn't surprise anybody. I, I mean, when we, but, but at some point, I've been so vocal and so consistent about my faith, about what is true. And I don't even position it like, here's about my faith. I don't even use those kinds of words usually. I, I simply talk about what is true on the basis of evidence. And and I've done that so consistently that at some point at work, you know, at first, there are people who are going to give you a hard time, and that happened to me. You know, you're going to have people who are going to tease you because they remember who you were last week. And they, they were there with you when you used to talk that way, when you used to do this or that. They were there. They saw all that. And so at first, they're going to mistake transformation for hypocrisy. And that always happens, right? You can be transformed. It doesn't mean that you're a hypocrite because you no longer do something you used to do or no longer use language you used to use. That's called transformation, okay? <laughs> so so that's going to happen. Uh, you're not a hypocrite if suddenly you lost 40 pounds and now you're in a different physical position. You used to be this, now you're that. You've transformed. So the same thing is true in this kind of transformation. So we have to kind of help people see that's a difference between the hypocrite. Because the first thing they're going to say is you're a hypocrite. But guess what? You know, a year, five years, ten years in, people knew who I was. And now they're coming to me when they're involved in something that they need to help them sort this out in their marriage. Or I've had legitimate police shootings where somebody had legitimately uh, darn near died and, 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 and ended up shooting somebody as a result of this interaction. And then wanted to know, was I, you know, what does God think of my shooting? And who are they going to go talk to? You know, cops aren't going to talk to chaplains unless the chaplain was a cop. Right. 
So there's a sense in which I served a role, even before I became a chaplain, of chaplaining cops because they they just needed to know who's the believer. I can go, and there weren't a lot of us who were vocal believers. So so yeah, just weather the storm. At first, it'll be messy, but if if you're consistent, years will go, and they'll see this for what it is. It's transformation. They won't see continually you continuing to be the the un untransformed person you were before. Um, the unregenerate person you were before, they'll see the change in you. And they'll see it for transformation instead of hypocrisy. And now you're going to have a chance to say something to them. Jim, as skilled as you are at apologetics and evangelism, how often do you say in your head, you know what, I think this person is unreachable? Well, I'm bad about that. I'll be honest with you. Okay. I think it's jury selection. We, you and I have talked about that before. I, I actually think that you, before you impanel, before you start making a case to anyone in a criminal trial, you select the right jury. And I always say that you win your cases not at the opening statement or the closing arguments. You win your cases at jury selection. It's who you put in the box that makes all the difference in the world. You can put the wrong people in the box, and I don't care if you're the defense team or you're the prosecution team. Everyone wants the people they want in the box. Because they know if he, if I have somebody in there who's I'm either going to hang this thing, or you know uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to win my case. So I they, we make a, we have a certain questioning process called the Vordire process where we talk you know we ask the right kinds of questions to make sure that people aren't so um, entrenched in their position and unmoving that they will not assess the evidence fairly. And by the way, I don't feel bad when I exclude someone from a jury. I mean I have to do that all the time. Yeah. And I don't ever feel bad about it. Some people aren't right for a jury. And the same, same is true here. I mean, until God has done something in the human heart to change, um, to soften, to call, I mean, I think that's just, that's just no one comes to, to Jesus except those who have been selected by the Father. And and I'm not trying to be, like, you know, overly theologically you know, reformed in my, in my approach there. But, but you already know this is probably true in your own experience if you think about your own conversion. Like again, for me, it was like well, I would never have paid attention to the evidence. I was never interested in the evidence for Christianity. I didn't. I was never interested in going to church, and I wasn't even interested in going to church when I first went to church. But suddenly, something happened that I was willing to start an investigation. Now, that was never me before. There's no way I would have wasted my time. It's not worth my time. I always would say that. That's totally a waste of time. And and but then suddenly it wasn't a waste of time. What happened? That's that's something that that people pray you toward. You don't. I've never maintained as an apologist that my clever words and arguments had that kind of power. You're they right. don't. Right? I mean, you're, you're, it's not your your presentation of the gospel which converts people. Is that they just need the information and God is doing something. God's at work, and He's giving you a chance to participate for some crazy reason. Where he's allowing you to share the gospel with somebody is that crazy? You don't. He doesn't have to do that. And then you get to learn and grow and mature as you present the gospel. So that's God's grace on you, and you're sanctifying you. And then somebody comes to faith. That's God's grace on them in terms of salvation. So it's God's grace all the way down. Yeah. I wonder how many people have tried sharing their faith and it went so poorly that they thought to themselves, "I'm never, never doing this again. I don't need to look that stupid again." 
Well, I'm sure that's. I mean, look, haven't I, I, I can think of times, many, many times, where I felt that way just to have Susie, who was standing right next to me, said, "Well, you know, you missed it because that wasn't the question they were asking. Ooh. That wasn't their real concern. You yeah. were just talking too much. You spent so much time talking, you weren't listening." And that's almost always my problem: is that you can, you you're so prepared to, excited really, yeah. to make this case. Somebody asked me recently, you know, so what, who's your audience for these books? I don't have an audience. You know, I, it's not like I ever, like, cleverly thought, well, I should. I mean, that's probably how you write a better book is you think about who's your audience and you write to your audience. But for me, it's always been I'm just excited to share with you what I discovered. If, it, if, it, if, it, if God uses this in your life in some way, great. But I'm not, like, trying to game the system. I'm not trying to cleverly figure out what audience can I sell a book to. I'm trying to – I'm just – it's like anybody who's excited – about something they just learned. They want to share it. And so if I'm just going to share it. This is what I discovered about the evidence for Jesus. Now, you're going to do with it what you will, and God's going to use the book the way he will. But but I don't I don't really have an audience in mind in the sense that like everyone needs to hear this. And how that how that works out in the end, I don't know, but but I just don't I just not I'm not like design, thinking up in advance. And that's probably just the opposite way you should write a book. But I think when it comes to like the gospel, you know when you first got saved, you couldn't wait to tell other people about it. And you probably were not all that discriminating about who it is you selected to hear it. You just mm-hmm. – everyone needed to hear it. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I feel about this case for Jesus. Yeah, fantastic. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about why we should start with Jesus when we have conversations. There's so many world religions that acknowledge Jesus in some way. I can't think of a better place to start than with Jesus himself. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Jay Warner Wallace as my guest. Jim was a, a former uh, cold case homicide detective. Jim, I feel like I have to ask you. I'm sure you're interested in the uh, Brian Laundrie Gabby Patino case. Yeah, I've been kind of tracking along with it a little bit. I, I wish I was better equipped to, to get all the details. But yeah. yeah, I have been following probably like you have, about the same as everybody else. Yeah, yeah. It's um, amazing. This is not guys... unusual, right? You have the, this is again exactly what we're talking about in person of interest. Like, what do you do? Well, they found her, her body now, but yes. before they found her body, she was a nobody missing persons case. But I guess you could argue that every missing persons is a uh, nobody case, right? Because if you knew where the body was, you know they weren't missing anymore. But but what happens typically, and this is this got uh, interrupted before I could get that far. But typically, what will happen is somebody will say uh, either nothing, you know, they they came, and she coming back, and they, if they never found her, right now, they'd have a hard time making a case against him unless they find some sort if he won't talk for example so this is what happens often where you'll get a case that's taken as a missing persons case now no one's going to probably forget her because it's such a public case to begin with but a lot of these local cases you know he can convince her family that she just ran off and the family's convinced of this they don't want to think their 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 daughter is dead they'd rather think that she ran off right not in this case but i mean in other cases Mm -hmm. where you know he says yeah we had an argument last night she took the car her purse all of her credit cards all of the cash we had in the house and she left and I haven't seen her in two weeks. Well, now three weeks go by, and then three years go by. And, and you know, the question is, uh, I got a case where, for example, I think maybe uh, it was probably 25 years went by, and we never once got a call from her family. Never wow. once. 
And the reason why we didn't get a call is because they believed, and he was clever enough to do little things to make it look like she was still alive uh, over the years. Little hang-up phone calls, you know, on birthdays and holidays. Oh, I think she called last last, last Christmas because we had a hang-up phone call. You know, little things that gave them hope that she, you know, she started a new life and for whatever reason wanted no connection to her old life. Well, what do you do in those cases? That's that's the whole the whole point of the book is you, if you don't have anything in your crime scene, if you, for example, were not even willing to look at the New Testament, could you still make a case even though you have no crime scene and no evidence from a crime scene? Well, we do this all the time, and we do it by you know tracing the fuse that leads up to the day she went missing. If it's a murder, something explosive happened, mm-hmm. and when that bomb went off, there was shrapnel everywhere. That fallout will tell you something about what happened also. So from the fuse and the fallout, we can make a case. Yeah. Same is true for Jesus. Yeah. So I've got one last question, maybe another 20 seconds on this. Your detective brain, do you think uh, Brian, her fiance is in the country or out of the country dead or alive he's alive okay. um uh most times people like this will will it's it, even if you think i'm suicidal eventually i'm going to kill myself usually you'll wait till the very last minute before you do it so okay. when they're surrounding your house that's typically when it happens up until then you're living your life and you're thinking hey i'm getting away with this maybe i can get away with it forever now, is he in or out of the country? I mean, I think it, I, I don't know enough about his ability to get in and out of the country. I mean, yeah. Most of us think, oh, yeah, I'll just flee the country. Well, think about what that would entail. Right. What are you going to use for money? What are you going to use for resources? What are you going to use? And it's harder than it sounds, okay? So I think a lot of ways, it's, whatever the easiest, given his life, that's what he's doing. Yeah. And so that's what I'd be looking at first. Like, what is the easiest thing he could do? Uh, it might just be that he's, it wouldn't surprise me if he's within, you know, 10 miles of his home wherever his home was, because that's the easiest thing to do. If I've got a, a place that I can hide in, but, but it's close to home, I'm familiar with it, that's probably what I'm going to do. Yeah. All right. So many world religions acknowledge Jesus uh, in some way. So if we're going to share our faith and there's someone who's interested in, in the existence of God, we should start with Jesus. Yeah, I, I, this is one of the things that I thought was so fascinating about the kind of fallout that Jesus has had, impact he's had. You know, I, I talk about like different chapters in the fallout of the book, the arts, the visual arts, music, literature, education, science. And I'm not just talking about places where he had a huge impact. I'm talking about places where the Jesus fingerprints are still so clear that you can reconstruct the story of Jesus from the debris. So, for example, if you just read the personal journals of the science fathers – over history, all the way through the scientific revolution, the most significant scientists in the history of science, you can reconstruct the story of Jesus just from their personal journals, because the most significant scientists in the history of scientists, oh, just happen to be Christ followers. So it turns out that you can reconstruct the story. Well, it's true also of world religions, because there are a number of world religions that follow Jesus in the common era, or in AD, like Islam, like Baha'i, like Krishna, Hare Krishna, like you know, uh, Ahmadiyya, uh, Ahmadiyya Muslims. These, there's a lot of, of folks who are following the. You know, they're in the common era. They're in that 2,000 year period of time, following Jesus. That you wouldn't be surprised if I told you. Guess what? Those systems include Jesus in some way. You can read the Quran and find Jesus in the Quran. You can read the Holy Scripture of the Baha'i Faith and find that Baha'u'llah actually wrote about Jesus as another manifestation of God, just like himself. So you you will see that Jesus appears. That wouldn't surprise you because the impact that Jesus had. But what's shocking is that there are a number of world religions that precede Jesus that have now, once they got 
into the common era, once they entered the third, fourth, fifth, sixth century, they had no choice but to bend their knee and include Jesus in some way. They either merge or modify or mention Jesus. And from the way that their leaders have mentioned Jesus or modified their practice or say, well, you know, if you're a Hindu, Jesus fits within Hinduism as an enlightened sage. You know, uh, this is true. Um, if you're Baha'i, he, he fits within your system as a manifestation of God. If you're a Muslim, he fits within your system as a um, as a prophet of a greater stature than than uh, Muhammad. So these these systems end up ad- adapting in some way or including Jesus in some way. And so in the book, I just made a list of all the ways, you know, even the Buddhist leaders will talk about the sermons and parables and interactions and travels and the miracles and the crucifixion and the resurrection. They will talk about the Jesus story in their own discussions, the leaders of Buddhism. They also will say he's an enlightened man, he's a wise teacher, he fits within Buddhism in some ways, on his way to Buddhahood. So uh, this is the kind of thing, then, if you look at it, you can reconstruct the story of Jesus. If you, if you for example, live somewhere where uh, Islam reigns, you know something about Jesus just from the Quran. It is amazing to me how many places in the world that are non-Christian where something about Christianity is known based on either the religious scripture or the statements of religious leaders within that system who have acknowledged Jesus in some way and have something positive to say about him. So I have a list, for example, of all the things, the details about sermon, about Jesus rather, that can be reconstructed from non-Christian worldviews, religious worldviews. And I think you'd be amazed to see how deep that list is. So, so this is, again, if, if, if you, and by the way, everyone is hat-tipping Jesus, right? They're all including Jesus and speaking kindly about Jesus. Yet Jesus makes no room for anybody else. It's not as though Buddhism preceded uh, Christianity, right? I mean, um, the, study, the worship of, of – well, Hinduism preceded Christianity. Krishna was worshipped before Jesus. These things preceded Jesus. He could have mentioned them the same way that everyone who follows Jesus mentions Jesus, but he never did. And that's something that – instead he says, hey, no one gets to the Father, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So, so there's an exclusivity about Jesus. And so I'm just saying, look, if you're interested in some form of world religion – well, why not check out the one guy that everyone seems to acknowledge while he acknowledges nobody? Why not check him out first? <laughs> I love <you> know? that. <laughs> so you might as well start with Jesus because yeah. he seems to be in that unique position. Yeah. I mean, and, I, it, and by the way, that's really true when you work in criminal cases. So like I've had cases where I've had like eight potential suspects. Seriously, eight, and I, one of them is my guy. The other seven are not related and not, not, not involved. And the one guy ends up standing out uniquely in some way. He has a unique opportunity, a unique relationship with the victim, a unique sense of hostility, a unique ability to use this weapon, whatever it is. The other seven just kind of fall into a group of people who don't have those unique abilities. Mm. And so you're looking for the unique guy who stands out in the crowd. Well, that's who Jesus is. Yeah, so good. So good. So we've only got a minute and a half left, Jim. If you're on an airplane, you've got an hour sitting next to the person next to you. Do you have a, a favorite invitational question you ask to get a conversation steered into a spiritual direction? Well, I'm not sure if you and I have ever talked about this, but there was an author years ago I met named James Picardo, and he wrote a book called Unsilenced. And I like that book because he always started, and I've kind of started to take on the same approach. You know, it's a simple question, and he and he had to muscle through the, the first question. So look, it's going to be, it's all that first 30 seconds that we dread. But if you can get through the first 30 seconds, it's all downhill from there. 
So you've got to get through the first 30 seconds. And so he always says, I'm just, I've got a pat 30-second start, and this is how I start. And it's a pretty interesting question. You know, like you could ask, what are you reading? You could, That's fine. But here's the question he would suggest, and I like it. And it could be awkward at first. But it's like, hey, so what, what do you think happens when you die? Hmm. Pretty simple question. Yeah. And that is diagnostic because if you say, well, I think you're reincarnated, I think you go back in the dirt, whatever your response is will help you figure out what their worldview is because yeah. they're going to give you – and even if they said, oh, I think you go to heaven, that could be pretty – that could be I mean, a thousand different things. So now you have a place to start. Yeah. Like, what do you mean by heaven? But that's a good opening diagnostic question. I have another friend who says it this way. He says, I notice you're wearing a, like an iPhone or, or your iWatch or you're wearing something like a nice watch. I know these have been – design things have been designed for a purpose. What is your purpose? Ooh. Great question. And now you can start talking about, well, look, how do you know, know what, where, does, where does purpose discovered? It's discovered usually if you want to know what something's been designed for, you've got to consult the designer. That's the best way to do it. Google it and find out what the designer thinks this is for. Yeah. And then you, so if you wanted to know what you're here for, you should probably consult the designer. Yeah, so good. Jim, thank you so much. Um, got a nice text. Very exceptional interview, Bill. I will be re-listening. So already people wanting to re-listen to this. How oh, nice. No, that's so great. I appreciate you having me. Bill. Yeah, you know that. Thanks. You know, I appreciate you very much. Jay Warner Wallace has been my guest. You can go to coldcasechristianity.com or you can head over and check out his new book on amazon.com if you want to uh, do that. It's called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. All right, after a short break, uh, we're going to have Mark Senius in and Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are going to be continuing our series of people from the Old Testament And I believe the uh, guest of honor today is Jeremiah. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.